Are you 100% sure of that call and when you made it and why did you make it? Absolutely. We made it after basically a half hour of debating. Is it time yet? Because it was, it's, it's been clear for a while that the former vice president is in, in the lead in Arizona and was most likely to, to win the state. It has been in the category that we call knowable but not callable for about an hour. Um, we finally called it right now. Um, yes, there are some outstanding votes in Arizona. Most of them are coming from Maricopa, where, where Biden is currently in a very strong position. And many of them are mail-in votes, where we know from our Fox News voter analysis, Biden has an advantage. Before 2020, Arizona had only voted for a Democratic president once since Harry Truman in 1948. But in 2020, something changed. Former Vice President Joe Biden won Arizona by 10,457 votes. And yeah, even Fox News was surprised. Arizona didn't turn blue because people were out just embracing the Democratic Party. Arizona turned blue because those who were struggling for their civil rights turned to the Democrats because the Republicans didn't offer them any kind of equity. We, like the news media, have talked a lot about how Georgia, a reliable Republican hotbed, went for the Democrats this year, both its electoral votes and its Senate seats. Georgia's political shift wasn't an overnight phenomenon. It happened after decades of organizing, for which Stacey Abrams has gotten a lot of well-deserved credit. But what happened in Arizona, a state that produced Republicans like John McCain, Sandra Day O'Connor, Barry Goldwater, Joe Arpaio, and Megan McCain? What's the story here? Is there a Stacey Abrams of Arizona? Is it about the Democrats figuring out a message that resonates with voters? <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't meant to be a joke. On this episode of Who Is, we're going to try to figure out what happened, why a reliably red state turned blue. So... Who is Arizona? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we examine power through the stories of people who have it. Today, we're going to Arizona. I've only been to Arizona once, and it was for a UFO convention. It's just a bunch of old white people selling turquoise jewelry and Coca-Pelli t-shirts back and forth, right? Well, no, obviously. Arizona is one of America's most diverse states with a complicated history that is, for better or worse, reflected in its political landscape. We're a diverse state. Uh, we have several Native American nations in Arizona, and we have a very large Latino population, and we have a very conservative rural population. That's Terry Green Sterling. My name is Terry Green Sterling, and I am a journalist and author. I teach at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. Sterling grew up on a ranch in Arizona, and she's covered the state for decades. I come from a borderlands family, so I grew up not distinguishing between Latino and non-Latino. Um, because my grandmother was Mexican-American, and that is very typical of borderlands families. The borders used to be, until restrictionist immigration policies 
uh, demanded fences and restrictions. It used to be very fluid. The borderlands um, were their own biome. And the people who lived in Mexico mixed with people who lived in the United States. And very often families were mixed. All of Arizona used to be Mexico. And before that, the region was the home of native peoples. The United States gets a hold of what is now Arizona during the Mexican-American War in 1848. When the Mexican-American War ended, Mexico ceded Arizona and a whole bunch of other states um, to the United States. And these people who had been living in their own country, Mexico, suddenly became part of Arizona. The U.S. buys a little more of the region in 1853 to build a railroad. And then in 1861, the Arizona Territory joins the Confederacy. A few years after the Mexican-American War, we had the American Civil War, which caused a whole bunch of Southern refugees to move into Arizona because Arizona had broken for the Confederacy. It only lasted for a couple of years, both the Confederacy and Arizona's membership in it. But it's important to note that that was how the people in power felt about things. According to the Phoenix New Times, quote, The state's oldest Confederate memorial was dedicated nearly 80 years after the Civil War ended, in 1943. The newest, shockingly, went up in 2010. What does that say about Arizona? When my grandmother, who was Mexican-American, was a child... Um, Latinos were segregated uh, from whites. They lived in segregated neighborhoods. They had substandard housing. They had substandard schools. And they were not given the same opportunities that whites were given. My grandmother was orphaned at the age of 10 and adopted by a white family who made her uh, feel very ashamed of her Mexican roots. She was taught to camouflage herself or to act white, um, and so she passed for white. She was Mexican-American, and uh, they, her parents fabricated a whole genealogy for her, and um, she passed for, for white for the rest of her life. When she was a young woman, those with Mexican ethnicity were still lynched, quote, Mexicans, unquote, were not allowed to legally marry whites. My grandmother escaped all of it, but she paid a really high price. I get why. I really do get why she passed for white. She had no parents. She was separated from her siblings, and she was thrown into this all-white world, and she had to survive. But she was never comfortable in either world completely, um, and it's interesting that she chose to live out her final years in Sonora. And I visited her often in Sonora, and I visited my cousins who got to live there. I was very envious. But then when you come from a borderlands family, as I come from, and um, you have blue eyes and blonde hair, as I have, people let things slip. And you hear things and you see things that you wouldn't otherwise see and hear. And when I was a child, I, I felt like they were talking about me. And I didn't understand why I felt it was wrong and why I felt so ashamed and why I felt so angry. And um, I guess my whole reporting life, the whole all the years I've been a journalist, I've been 
trying to understand, I've been trying to understand why people feel this way, why people hate each other. And that's what I've devoted my reporting life to. In some ways, it's easier to identify what's happening than it is to understand it. You never really get an answer to the why question. But what's been happening in Arizona is less mysterious if you understand that the state was part of the Confederacy, for example. It's history that is present in, well, the present. This white supremacy bubbles up and then disappears and bubbles up and disappears, even though it's always there, but it hides itself. And the organizing in response to that bubbling up was one of the catalysts for the political change that has occurred in the state. So I grew up undocumented in Arizona. I grew up knowing that at any moment my family members or myself could be deported. I grew up with a single mother who worked really hard to make sure that, you know, we can do what we, we, what she came to this country to do. And so very early on in my life, I, I understood the, the fears of the undocumented community. I understood what, what growing up in low-income neighborhoods meant. And I understood the politics of this state. That's Phoenix City Council member Carlos Garcia. My name is Carlos Garcia. I am currently a city council member for the city of Phoenix for District 8, and I've been a community organizer for the last 18 years here in Arizona. I've now spent my entire adult life working first for immigrant rights, human rights, and now as a city council member for social justice overall. So why did Carlos Garcia get involved in the first place? Well, because of that bubbling up that Terry Green Sterling talked about. In In 2001, my freshman year in college, I remember a professor um, right after 9-11 telling us that after 9-11, we would see an attack on the immigrant community. Um, And it didn't take long for Arizona to do that. In 2002, we uh, saw the English-only bill. In 2004, we saw legislation called Prop 200 that took away rights from undocumented people. And, you know, seemed like every year or every two years after that, we kept seeing another anti-immigrant measure that we had to fight back against. And so a lot of times when people ask me when I chose or why did I choose or how did I get involved, the answer is not that I chose to, but that actually my family and my community was under attack. And so there was no choice but to get involved and, and start fighting back the anti-immigrant sentiment in, in my own home. Here's then Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio on Fox News. As far as the illegal immigrants coming into our country that are criminals, we've done research in the jails that I run. 8,600 people we turned over to ICE. Over 3,000 have come back to the same jails. 67% are felons. So how come they keep coming back? Someone has to be letting them out on the street or they're going to the border and keep coming back. One guy came back 20 times. Who is Joe Arpaio, you ask? Well, he was sheriff of Maricopa County, where Phoenix is, for 24 years, 1993 to 2017. So Joe Arpaio um, is, is known around the world 
honestly, around the world as America's toughest sheriff. He is a, he is a character who was born in Massachusetts and um, spent many years uh, in federal drug enforcement working for the DEA and then retired in Arizona and um, was elected sheriff at, when he was 60 years old. He was 60 years old when he was elected sheriff. And he went out, he ran on a law and order platform. And at the time um, in the 90s, America was suffering from a crime wave and um, people were really, really, really scared of crime. And Joe Arpaio ran as this law enforcement guy that would protect um, Maricopa County residents. He would be their sheriff and he would protect them from crime, which is um, interesting because basically his main job was uh, running jails and policing sort of, uh, he could police any place in Maricopa County, which is the largest county in Arizona and includes Phoenix. But um, all these towns had their own police forces. So even though he could police any place, he was really, his job as sheriff traditionally had been running the jails and policing the unincorporated areas of the county. He sort of gained fame for what his critics call abusing the civil rights of his jail inmates, making them eat rancid food or old food, serving them two meals a day, having some of the sentenced inmates live in outside in, in Korean War surplus tents. Um, but as, as the mood in Arizona changed with the Great Recession, and um, there, became to, there came to be more and more xenophobia, and uh, politicians who were anti-immigrant were seeming to get more attention in Arizona. Joe Arpaio shifted uh, to immigration enforcement. Arpaio got national attention, and for all the wrong reasons. He literally brought back chain gangs, and his prison camps, yeah, prison camps, were so bad they got profiled on Australian TV, like how an American TV station would cover North Korea. Sheriff Joe loves to confront his own prisoners, especially with a camera present, and play the tough guy. It's going to get hot here. Now. You were here in the wintertime. Now you're going to see the summertime. But the fact is, these people are not here for heinous crimes. Serious offenders go to the state penitentiary. Only petty criminals sentenced to less than a year end up in the sheriff's jails. I'm in here for driving on a suspended license. Oh, really? Yeah. There is a definite streak of sadism here. No matter what your feelings are about crime and punishment, there's a little thing called the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution that prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. Anyway, here's Terry Green-Sterling. The story of Arpaio and his influence on Arizona and Arizona's efforts to break away from him are really, really an interesting case study for this political moment that we're in today. Remember this guy? We're going to build the wall. We have no choice. We have no choice. Build that wall, 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 build that wall. 
Joe Arpaio had been Donald Trump's early supporter. Uh, Donald Trump had studied Arpaio's immigration enforcement rhetoric and his methods, and Arpaio is one reason that that Trump took Arizona-style immigration enforcement national. We'll be back after this. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is. Today we're looking at Arizona and the story behind Arizona turning blue. We've talked about the borderlands and some of the cultural landscape that defines the place that Arizona is. But let's go to some more recent history and take a look at America's toughest sheriff. Here's Carlos Garcia. Sheriff Arpaio, like I said, I spent 10 years of my life waking up every day trying to figure out how we were going to get this person to back off. Um, and stop hurting our communities. When Carlos Garcia says Arpaio was hurting our communities, what does he mean? I remember one time we pulled up to to a family that was being stopped, and the mom was being taken in, and the children were left, and, and they were waiting for an aunt to pick them up. And I remember the sheriff officer went into their trunk and picked up two stuffed animals. And at the time, you wouldn't... It, you know, it didn't click, but the, the sheriff, you know, it seemed like he was doing something nice when he took the toys and handed them to the kids and said, you know, someone's going to come pick you up, but we're going to take your mother. But when I reflected on that after is part of that officer's tool belt was to actually put toys in his car because he knew there was a high likelihood that he would be separating the family that day. And so that's who Sheriff Arpaio was, a, a person that that traumatized and, and, and led an anti-immigrant movement that some would argue, I would argue, even led to the rise of Trump and the policies of, of Trump in the last four years. And it wasn't just Arpaio. The state passed SB 1070, the quote, Support Our Law Enforcement and Safe Neighborhoods Act. SB 1070 was hardline anti-immigrant legislation. Notice I said anti-immigrant, not anti-immigration. And there was a lot in it, some of which was found to be unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, but some of which remains. One of the most controversial provisions enabled police to detain anyone suspected of being in the country illegally. There's also something called 287G, a program that gives state and local law enforcement federal immigration enforcement authority. This gets complicated, and we don't have time to fully get into it here. But what you should know is that this is a pretty scary George W. Bush-era effort that was expanded without significant reform of any kind by President Barack Obama. State and federal legal tools like SB 1070 and 287G gave Sheriff Arpaio, the prison camp guy, a huge amount of power. And so he started doing two types of raids. He started doing worksite raids which you've seen in other parts of the country. He did about 96 worksite raids from public libraries to fast food places to cleaning supply places. Um, and he would terrorize the, the community in that form. But he did something that hadn't been done anywhere else, which was he called crime suppression sweeps. He would set a perimeter in a predominantly 
Latino immigrant Mexican community. And he would ask his officers along with volunteer posse members to detain and stop anyone that looked undocumented. What resulted was rampant abuse of power, obviously racial profiling, and many people from our communities being taken, imprisoned, and deported. He also was very vocal about what he was doing. He would set up press conferences and create fear before he was doing these raids, creating panic and trauma that, that still lives in Maricopa County in Arizona today. Arpaio was an elected official for 24 years. Watching our neighbors, watching the people of Arizona and Maricopa County re-elect people like Sheriff Arpaio, Russell Pierce and others, sent a very clear signal to us that it wasn't, it wasn't just Arpaio's lonely voice who wanted to get rid of us. It was actually a large group of people um, that aimed to get rid of us or saw us as, as, some, as a group of people that shouldn't be here. And so, you know, when when we start thinking about fighting back, not only against Sheriff Arpaio, but obviously his popularity, and we started doing work to to fight back, his popularity was upwards of 70% of the electorate. And so when when you start thinking, and and why I say we fought for 10 years, it was definitely uh, an uphill battle where even some Latinos or or some people of color were okay with what was happening. And so it wasn't as easy to say, there's a group of white people that don't want us here. It was the culture at the time definitely felt like the majority of people in Arizona were trying to get rid of undocumented people. And that, you know, included parts of my family. I had six people in my family from the 2009 to 2014 go through deportation processes. Five of them were deported. One of them we were able to fight after spending a, almost a year in detention. He was able to stay here. So it was it was definitely not just our pile we were fighting, but it was it was the voting block that continued for six straight terms to elect him. Why were people voting for this guy? In 2020, Sheriff Joe couldn't even win the Republican primary for Sheriff of Maricopa County his second failed comeback. But the guy was in office for 24 years, which means he won a lot of elections. My best theory is the change in demographics. I think the state of Arizona, for the decades before that, the state of Arizona was populated by people retiring here, a lot from the Midwest or the East Coast that probably were never around. People like myself, uh, people of color or Mexicans in particular in Arizona. And it was populated by, you know, some folks that have been here, a lot of Native communities. And post-NAFTA, and because of some of federal restrictions around the border that closed off California, Texas, and other traditional points of entry, Arizona became the corridor of most people that were migrating to the United States. And so we saw... Uh, many of us come through through the Arizona border and these populations began to clash. And so they could be race-based, they could be economic-based, um, whatever the reasons the anti-immigrant folks gave, um, what was real was the attack and the attrition strategy to attempt to get rid of us was real. 
Arizona was once part of Mexico, and before that, it was a region where many native people lived, and still do. So it's a little strange to think about changing demographics, when in some ways it's white Americans who are the new arrivals. Nevertheless, in 1990, Latinos made up 18.8% of Arizona's population, according to the census. In 2010, they made up 29.6%. And it's estimated that in another decade, Arizona will be a majority-minority state, which is weird phrasing, but basically means that white people will be the minority. For Carlos Garcia, Arizona doesn't change without people like Arpaio. I definitely think that Without Arpaio, Arizona does not turn blue. Without SB 1070, Arizona does not turn blue. We had to create infrastructure, but a lot of the work was also going to the courts, bringing lawsuits. It was registering people to vote. I think one of the things we learned in Arizona, especially after SB 1070, is that we had to do and try all tactics. Um, And it wasn't going to be one singular tactic, whether it was voting or protesting or lawsuits that was going to allow us to prevail or get rid of of the policies that were hurting us. And so through that whole process, we also helped change the electorate in Arizona. And one of the first places it was felt was in the city councils, in the local races. We had to create organizing to stand, stand up to our pile that organizing, that infrastructure, all those skills that were learned were then turned around and executed through electoral politics. I myself would not be on city council if it wasn't for that work that we did against Arpaio or SB 1070. I wouldn't have been able to build a profile or learn how to run a campaign or have the backing resources to be able to run for office if it wasn't for that struggle. And I would say the same for a lot of um, my colleagues, either on the council or at the state ledge. I see very similar things happening in Georgia. Without, you know, Stacey Abrams, some of the organizations in Georgia and the work that they've done for decades, even some of the Latino organizations like GLAR there, they wouldn't have been able to flip the state. And that's part of the real story behind Arizona turning blue. Decades of organizing around civil rights in response to Joe Arpaio. And in Arizona, that story isn't about Latinx voters generally. It's about Mexican-Americans specifically. The pan-Latino framing holds so many different experiences, whether it's Caribbean, South American, Mexican, Central American. And our experiences have simply not been the same. And we've also settled in different places of the country. And so we have geographical differences even within the the country that I think need to be acknowledged. But I also think it's important for us to hold that identity, to hold the the commonalities of either, you know, our past and and how the the countries we come from were, were colonized or influenced by similar people. And also how in this country, in the U.S., we're seen as similar people. And so I think there's problems within within thinking that, that, you know, all Latinos are the same. Um, But there's also problems with, with people wanting to divide us. 
I think it's, you know, I'm part of an organization called Mi Gente, where we're literally attempting to establish a Latinx political home. I identify as a Chicano, as a Mexican, but I see the importance in learning and understanding and fighting alongside Puerto Rican and other folks that fall under the Latino, I guess the, the pan-Latino label. But it, it is complex. I think it's important. It's definitely the largest growing of what you would call the minority voting blocks. Um, I think there's power in that. I think and I hope that we bind ourselves more by policies or ideals and values rather than just by, you know, the word Latino. So I could look at AOC, for example, as someone that has a completely different history than myself, but I could see her struggle intertwined with mine. Our families come from different places. In this country, we're both called Latinos, and I see why it's, it would be important for us to align. At the same time, I see someone like Ted Cruz doing what he's done and failing Texans and, and other folks, and I see absolutely no alignment. And, and so, again, I think it's a, a conversation that is going to be continued. I think it's important to jump into it of what it means. But regionally, I think it's it's important, especially in a place like Arizona, to understand that it was the Latino vote it was the Mexican-American vote that flipped and turned the state blue. That's not the only story in Arizona. There's another community that showed up. People who were in Arizona long before there was an Arizona, a United States, or a Mexico. More after this. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is. Today, we're looking at the story behind Arizona turning blue. So who else lives in Arizona? Well, some folks have been there longer than anyone else. There are 22 tribes in Arizona, and it comprises 27% of the land base. Most of the tribes are in rural areas, but we do have some metro tribes as well. And we have five of the top 10 largest land-based tribes in the United States in Arizona. That's Patty ferguson Bonnie. Hi, my name is Patty ferguson Bonnie. I'm from the Pornishan Indian Tribe, and I am the director of the Indian Legal Clinic at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, where I run the Native Vote Election Protection Project, which was founded in 2008 as a way to protect Native American voting rights and ensure that Native Americans have access to the polls. Do Patty Ferguson Bonnie's roots go back generations like Terry Green Sterling? I came to Arizona after I graduated from law school because my husband's from Arizona. He's a member of the Gila River Indian community and he's also Hopi. So we came here because this is where his family's located. Grow where you're planted, right? There's work to be done wherever you are. Patty Ferguson Bonnie has been working on voting rights issues like forever. 
So as a baby attorney, I started working right away on voting rights issues on behalf of tribes, particularly in redistricting. And then I became involved in the voter ID case when Arizona passed a voter ID law. We wanted to make sure that Native people had access to the ballot. And I just remember our client in our voter ID case, her name was Grandma Agnes. Her name was Agnes Laughter. She was a weaver and she had started voting in the 1970s because in Arizona, Native people really weren't allowed to vote. They couldn't realize the vote until the 1970s, whenever the literacy requirements were permanently banned through the Voting Rights Act. Before that, Native Americans, many Native Americans weren't allowed to vote because of the literacy requirement. And Native Americans only gained the right to vote in 1948 through litigation. And she really wanted to vote because she had been voting since the 1970s. And when she went to vote on election day because of the voter ID law, she was turned away. She was humiliated and she really wanted to to fight so that other people didn't have to go through that humiliation that she went through. And as citizens, we should have an equal opportunity to participate. And she really fought for that and was so passionate that that really drove me to to work on these issues to ensure that other people's rights to the ballot also were not being denied. And we noticed that in Indian country that there wasn't a lot of work being done to protect Native voters. And uh, I really wanted to focus my effort on this project to try to protect Native American voting rights. One, because there's such there were such widespread problems but two, because litigating after the fact doesn't ensure that your vote on election day is counted. And people often get discouraged when they're turned away from the polls, and sometimes they may not return uh, a second time. And we really, you know, in order for people to be effective members of the electorate, they need to be able to participate and have their voice counted. Voting matters. And when an election comes down to like 10,000 votes, every vote counts. There was an 89% turnout rate among registered voters in Navajo Nation. 97% of votes went to Biden. So why did so many Native voters pick Biden? I asked Patty Ferguson Bonney about the issues that matter in tribal communities and what the link is between those issues and voting. That might sound obvious, but Native Americans have a unique relationship to local, state, and federal government. I think that it's really important that Native people participate in the political process because the federal government and the state government impact the day-to-day lives of Native people. Tribes are sovereign and it's important um, that other government entities, whether that's the state or the county or the federal government, recognize that sovereignty. And um, through our work with the Native Voter Election Protection Project, we really, you know, have tried to push that you need to work with your tribal communities on this government to government uh, relationship and, and respect them. And a lot of things that happens with voting impacts the sovereignty of tribes because the federal government has a trust responsibility to tribes and they've really been failing in that trust responsibility. And I think we can see that through what's happened in Indian country through the coronavirus pandemic. 
and that's really exposed some things that I think most Americans haven't seen before, like the ac lack of access to water in Indian country, lack of electricity, lack of access to cars, um, high rates of poverty, high rates of um, underlying conditions. So a lot of these things we call um, isolated conditions. We have language barriers, we have socioeconomic disparities, lack of access to mail, the digital divide. These are all factors that impede access to the polls. It impedes access in the political process. And the reason why it's important that natives participate in the state and federal electoral process is because of this federal trust relationship. And even though tribes have inherent rights and are self-determined, the federal government makes a lot of decisions about that relationship and how they're going to exercise that government-to-government -government relationship. So people who are elected, people who are in uh, administrative positions make a huge difference on the day-to-day -day lives of Native people. And whether they're going to get a road or whether they're you're going to have enough resources uh, for their health care systems or whether they're going to, you know, have enough resources for education. And so that all impacts the self-determination and the inherent sovereignty of tribal people. Patty Ferguson Bonnie is referring to the legal relationship between the United States and Native Americans. Technically, the United States recognizes the, quote, sovereign status of federally recognized Indian tribes as domestic dependent nations, end quote. What Patty Ferguson Bonney is saying is that voting matters because of the way in which tribal nations are situated in the United States, and that tribal political power and representation in American government is important in order to ensure that Native people have a say in the government that in many ways determines how they can run what are legally sovereign nations, sovereign nations that exist within the United States. So basically, it's really important that tribes have a seat at the table because their rights are kind of uniquely vulnerable. So in order to have that voice, that perspective, and to protect sovereignty, we need to have people turn out to vote. We need to have people who run for these elected positions. We need to have people serving as judges. We need to have people serving in all, you know, all areas outside of, you know, what we, where we may usually see Native people, because we know that if we're not there, people are not uh, taking our issues into account on our behalf. They're looking at it from a different perspective. And many times, you know, really, just to say frankly, because I'm from a tribe from Louisiana, like, really, it's a violation of human rights and self-determination. But I think that, in general, the American population is not familiar with issues impacting tribes, with treaties, with sovereignty, with self-determination. We're not taught that in schools. That's not included in the history books. And there needs to be more work on that and more awareness of these issues, because I really think that people see Native people as something in the past and not as people who are continuously existing. Okay, so the why here is a little bit different from what we talked about earlier. But from a simple get-out-the-vote perspective, how did the huge voter turnout increases happen? I think that tribes really worked together on messaging, and then each tribe had their own messaging. Some tribes had messaging in their tribal languages. So I think that the tribal leaders should really uh, be complimented for their efforts to 
you know, ensure this engagement. Um, and obviously under federal law, tribal people have a, a right to vote, but to ensure that tribal facilities were available, open, cleaned, that working with the state, that uh, there was access to resources to provide either larger voting locations or um, outside voting locations or cleaning supplies that were need to make people feel safe. I know that Native Vote through the Intertribal Council of Arizona and the Rural Utah Project really worked together to provide voter safety kits to voters before election day for early voting and also on election day. And I think working within the tribal communities and growing, you know, the next generation of leaders is what we should be uh, focused on and building coalitions that there isn't just one person, that it's all of us together working collectively to try to ensure that people are able to vote and have this access. And I think that's really empowering. And I think people felt empowered. I met a lot of first time Native voters during the early voting period when I was volunteering at Salt River, young people who were energized and proud to vote, going to vote with their parents. And I think making that a routine now that you're starting to vote and the importance of voting and encouraging that, I think is really important. Going forward, what does that mean for Native communities in Arizona? I think that uh, this round that a number of us believe that the Native turnout really was the difference in at least the presidential election, that but for Native people turning out in these high numbers, that the outcome in Arizona would have been different. Momentum will build on that, and hopefully it will result in continued engagement and the realization that we need to continue to turn out to vote and have our voices heard. And that if we have our voices heard, that people may pay attention to our issues if we're making a difference in the outcome of elections and and then continue to participate. And like Carlos Garcia pointed out earlier, this isn't about the Democratic Party. We have had very successful Republicans uh, represent Native people. You know, John McCain was a champion for a lot of Native issues in the state of Arizona. Uh, Senator Kyle also was a champion for water issues for uh, Native Americans. I think tribes know that this isn't, it isn't necessarily a partisan issue that we have had, like, individuals on both sides of the aisle not recognize tribal rights, and we've had individuals on both sides of the aisle, you know, both have people who've recognized tribal rights and both have people who haven't recognized tribal rights and sovereignty. Again, I like to say Senator McCain, like, advocating on behalf of tribal people, because that's a a big constituent for the state of Arizona. The last administration didn't really have any federal Indian policy. They didn't articulate any federal Indian policy and really try to advance any rights for Native people. And you need that. You need to have that government-to-government relationship. But you also need Native people as individuals to see that you recognize that, recognize those rights and try to elevate Native people. So I think that's, you know, I think that's the challenge for both parties. I don't think the Democratic Party, you know, can feel like, oh, 
natives are with us because we won this election. I think they still have to, to work and be responsive to native people. There is no Stacey Abrams of Arizona. And in fact, it probably isn't fair that Stacey Abrams gets so much credit for what happened in Georgia, even though, to be clear, she definitely deserves a lot of credit. When it comes to Arizona, there's many organizers and many people who made a difference in 2020. 10,457 votes. There's one story we didn't mention in this episode, not because it isn't important, but because it's part of a broader national narrative. And that's the John McCain and Cindy McCain story. In an election that came down to 10,457 votes, it mattered. But the people who switched parties in 2020 never lacked political power and have always been represented in government. Carlos Garcia is on the city council today, but in 10 years, he could be in the Senate. And like Patty Ferguson Bonney said, Votes force politicians to be responsive to communities they may have ignored in the past. And beyond that, while representation isn't everything, representation matters. It's been a long struggle, and it's a fight that continues. Arizona, like we talked about earlier, was part of the Confederacy. And the most recent monument to the Confederacy wasn't put up in 1865. It was put up in 2010. I want to go back to Carlos Garcia. If you see something wrong, especially if it's something that's happening to your own community, is is the most essential thing is to take that first step and begin a fight. The organizing strategies and tactics and so on, those will come later. Um, but like like we say in Spanish, the ganas is the most important thing. The want, the yearning to fight back is, is the most important thing. Next time on Who Is, we examine one of the universal truths of America. Our healthcare system kind of sucks. But why? Wouldn't it be better if it were good? Why do we have the system that we do? And who does this system benefit? It's the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future. Next week on Who Is. A sincere thank you to our guests. Patty Ferguson Bonney, a professor of law at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. A member of the Point Ashan tribe, she is director of the Indian Legal Clinic and serves as the Native Vote Election Protection Coordinator for the state of Arizona. Phoenix City Council member and longtime organizer, Carlos Garcia, who represents Phoenix's 8th District. And Terry Green Sterling, an author and award-winning journalist who's been writing about Arizona for many years. Her forthcoming book, co-authored with Jude Joff Block, is Driving While Brown, Sheriff Joe Arpaio versus the Latino Resistance. It's out in April 2021. This has been Who Is, a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, your host. Michael McDowell is our producer. Laura Tillman is our associate producer. 
Mona Hassan is our writer. Editing and mixing by Jordan Balaber. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Boehner, and Amanda Earle. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Hadakuder. And now this, Tina Exaros is our chief content officer, and Nathan Stephanopoulos is our president. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and tell your friends. Is there an idea you want to hear us do an episode about? Feel free to reach out on Twitter at SNMRRW. That's me.